Welcome to the teaching ministry of Rev. Daryl Baker, pastor of Christian Faith Fellowship. Pastor Baker is fulfilling the call of God on his life to preach the Word of God without compromise. Raising up disciples who through faith in God will have a powerful impact on our world. May you be blessed through the message that Pastor Baker has to share with you today. May God's very best be yours. I want you to turn to Revelation 2. Revelation 2. Yeah, first question, who's the Antichrist? Revelation 2. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. Nobody asked that question. Y'all getting smart, man, because asking that question, you already know my answer. If you want to find out, just, you know, live a lukewarm life and you'll find out who he is. I'm not going to do that, praise God. So the Bible doesn't reveal to me who he is. All right. Question number one. So listen carefully to the question. If it's fairly long, I may reiterate it a couple times or key points. So you understand significant beyond just what somebody's asking. What are we really addressing or deal with? So question number one. As Jesus addresses the churches in Revelation. The what? Churches in Revelation. My take on this. It's not denominational churches he's speaking to. We'll come back to that. It's not denominational churches he's speaking to. It's the individual people because we are the church and in every denomination there are these kinds of people. Am I seeing this correctly? So this is my view of what your question is about. You're saying that he is speaking to those churches but he's not talking specifically to the denomination churches. He's talking to all the people in the churches. Number one, let me address something that wasn't in the question. There were no denominations in that time. So denominations are totally man-made. They started fairly early. The strongest denomination we have, now it wasn't the first, believe it or not. It was actually a lot of individual little groups that we don't even hear about today that aren't even in existence anymore. But, you know, over time, we've seen all of a sudden certain denominations kind of get solidified. So let me say something about denominations. First of all, Revelation is not writing to denominations. There are no denominations spoken of here. It's not like, hey, to the Baptist church. Hey, when he says Ephesus, that's where the church was. Laodicea, that's where the church was. So I'm not trying to, I'm just trying to explain to you, this was not even written to denominations at all. But in relationship to denominations, clearly many have come along. Some good, most of them not so good. And the truth is, even the ones that started off pretty well have kind of gotten off in the direction that obviously is not good according to scripture. Like for example, the Methodist denomination, John Wesley started it. He was a powerful man of God. He was one Holy Ghost. You know, he started it because none of the churches of the day would let him preach in their churches. So he would preach out in the streets and out in the, you know, out any place that he'd get a crowd. And so after he started getting a following, he started what we know of the Methodist movement, but it hasn't stayed obviously the way John Wesley started it. So understand that there were no denominations here. So first of all, a little correction in the fact, is it not denominational church? It's not denominational churches he's speaking to. Well, he's not speaking to denominational churches at all because they're not denominational churches. But I get your point. Is he actually just talking to the actual aspect of that group of of that church itself or the individuals inside? Ready for the answer? Both. He's talking to both. So what he's actually referring to in these letters, I'll show you this. Revelation 2.1, to the angel, which means the messenger. Who's the messenger? Who's the messenger of the churches? The pastor is. 
to the pastor, messenger of the church at Ephesus. Notice this, right. So this letter is directly given to the entire church at Ephesus. So it's twofold. It includes the entirety of the church, but it also includes all the individuals in that church, and it also includes every individual in the body of Christ. Right. Now, there was definite uh, issues in relationship to these churches different from church to church. So in that case, it is going to that body of believers who's having that issue. And in the context of the church of Ephesians, if you'll notice this and uh, down here in verse 4, he says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Now, he didn't say that about all the rest of the churches. So the answer here is, is it just to the people inside or is it to the, you said denominations, but the church? It's to both. Because in this case, this is a word directly for those in Ephesus who God knows that church that's in Ephesus, you've left your first love. So it is to that whole body of believers. But it's also to individual believers all across the planet because now today in relationship to where we're at, it applies to... the whole. Here's the way to look at it, okay? Anything in these letters that God wrote to any of these churches, here's the deal. If the shoe fits you, wear it. Because sure, individually, there's a lot of believers whose love has grown cold, especially the day you and I are living in now. Why, you know, a little side note. Why do Christians love? Why, 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 does, the, excuse me, why does the love of a Christian go, grow cold uh, uh, from Jesus, from God? What causes a believer their love to grow cold according to Matthew 24? Lawlessness. He said because of lawlessness, he said you are no longer in love with God. Your love for God has drawn cold. Why? Lawlessness. Lawlessness. This is just a separate little note. But the point is, what's lawlessness again? A disregard for the Word of God. A lack of respect and honor for the Word of God. You're either trying to make it fit your lifestyle now, which proves God ain't your first love anymore, or you don't even want to honor what it says. Therefore, God and His Word are one. You're already pulling away from God. So it's lawlessness. It's this lack of respect for God's Word and what God's Word says. And I mentioned it again this morning you know, this is borne out biblically, okay? The Word of God can be bread of life or it can be a rock of, of uh, offense. It can be a rock to some people. You know, we got to be careful of some of the statements. And I've just, this really hit me uh, last night and then again this morning. And the Lord started speaking to me about this. And I thought, well, why would you speak to, that about me, you know, speak to, to me about that now? And it, it was addressed in our, in our message this morning. But you got to understand when you share the Word of God, to anybody. To one individual, it can be the bread of life. To another individual, it can be a rock of offense. Like you threw a stone. Right. We don't intentionally take the Bible to try to hurt anybody. But the Bible hurts people. Right. Now, in, you'll see this if you go actually into... I'm not going over there tonight. But if you go over to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8. You'll see in 1 Peter 2, chapter 2, verse 8. It says, those who did not obey the word, to them the word was a rock of offense. Why? They didn't obey it. So when people stop obeying the, the Word of God, what are they doing? As I'm tying to what we're talking about. They're becoming lawless. They're having a dis, disrespect, disregard for the Word of God. And therefore, now all of a sudden, the Word, the truth that should be there as a bread of life to help them out of situations becomes what? It becomes a rock of offense. 
And what happens is their love for God starts growing cold. Most of these people don't come up to you and say, you know what? I disregard the word of God now in my life. I don't love Jesus like I used to. Now, that's not what they say. They say, your pastor's off the wall. I know I once believed that. I don't believe that anymore. I don't agree with that anymore. Da, 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 da. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What are we talking about? Because if it's black and white, God doesn't change. And you better, darling, figure out whether or not what you're talking about is black and white or not. If it's black and white and now you don't want to adhere to it anymore, it's because you're choosing to now disregard God's word and go your way. What's the result of that? That's what, that's what I just described. What's the result of that? Your love for God will grow cold. Thus saith the Bible. And this is why we talk so much about this because guess what I don't want to have, have happen in your life? I don't want your love for God to grow cold. So back to the question. It applies both to that specific overall body of believers and individuals, not just in that church, but in any church that that would apply to. These letters were shared amongst the churches. But it was specifically directed, obviously, at the time to those churches. Today, this is for all of us to see. Because we got everything from Christians whose love has grown cold to uh, Christians that are living corrupt lives to Christians that are lukewarm. But we also have some Philadelphia Christians, too, who haven't backed down. I mean, can you imagine one out of these seven churches got commendation for doing right? The other six were not. My point, again, to say, sadly, the majority is rarely right. So realize it's not, you know, the majority that de determines whether or not you're doing what's right in the sight of God or not. Amen. Amen. I can't ask you if that answered your question. I hope it did. But if you understand what I'm saying, it applies to both. It applies to the overall body that he wrote it to, but it also applies to individuals anywhere, no matter where they're at, including those in the church, clearly, that he spoke to. Matthew 13. Matthew 13. Now, I just throw the nuggets in as the Holy Spirit kind of messes with us, messes with me. Doesn't really mess with me. I mean, just, you know, alert me to touch on that. But understand, that's critical because the day you and I live in, this is a huge problem. Huge problem. That, that people want to go their own way. Now, listen, you know, that leads up to another point about Christianity. Christianity, folks, I want you to get this. Christianity, living Christ-like. You ready for this? It ain't easy. You know why? If it was easy, everybody would be doing it. Right. Look at the benefits. Right. Everybody would do it. It's not. What's hard about it? It challenges your flesh to the core. Amen. As like we started talking about this morning, everything relating to your flesh and the Spirit of God, the new spirit you have within you and the Spirit of God are totally what? They're totally opposed to each other. Right. So it is hard. It is hard. I'm not going to hear, I'm not going to ever sit here and tell you, oh, hey, man. You know, living according to the Bible is a piece of cake. It's easy, man. There's nothing to it. No, let me help you. If you're going to live according to the Bible, you are going to face some challenges in your life. You are going to face some times of true challenge in your flesh to deal with, just like Paul did and others did, to have to obviously overcome those challenges. And the problem, you know, the problem there becomes, if I just want to live in the natural, a happy, little comfortable life, you know, I think of Brother Summerall. He said, you know, the honest truth is, and I'm, I'm, I really want to get to this in some time of this year. He said, the honest truth is, if you live by faith, it'll challenge you to your core. He said, most people really, when they start learning what really walking by faith is really all about, they don't want to do it. A lot of people just think of faith as having some kind of mystic thing that I can just call things up and get what I want. But faith is a whole lot more than just praying and believing for something. That's right. Come on, Pastor. 
Faith is a lot. Faith has so many multiple definitions of what faith is all about. Enoch walked with God and God called it, with, called it faith. How close are you walking with God? Amen. That's faith. Yeah. If you're not walking close to God, guess what you're not doing? You're not walking in the fullness of faith. Because God told us, Enoch walked with me and he was no longer. And he called it faith. So there's a lot of aspects of faith that people don't understand that are significant to us walking in the light of what faith is all about. Question number two. This is a good question too. All these are good questions. I like this one. What is the number one way to overcome the sin of familiarity or guard against it? What is the number one way to overcome the sin of familiarity or at least guard against it? Good question. Now let's look at Matthew 13 because I'm not going to take for granted everybody knows what in the world is the sin of familiarity. Some might be saying that. What is the sin of familiarity? Now I understand this. There's no specific verse that says sin of familiarity, but there's no verse that says rapture either. And yet we know there's a rapture because the word rapture means catching away. So we have an implication here in these verses of what Dr. Barclay, and I'm grateful that he has, has literally, just so we can understand it, termed it the sin of familiarity. Watch it. Matthew 13, verse 53. Jesus comes back now to his own hometown of where he grew up in Nazareth. And in verse 53, it says, As it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. And when he had come to his own country, so he's in his full-time aspect of ministry, doing what God called him to do. He returns to his own country, Nazareth, and he taught them in their synagogue. Notice this. So they were what? Astonished. Underline that. They were astonished at his teachings. They were astonished, notice this, and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? So they knew this couldn't just come from the aspect of a natural man. Man, he's got to be getting this from somewhere, relationship to God or something, because how in the world does he know these things? How can he do these things? Notice the next verse, 55. Is this not the carpenter's son? <clears throat> Meaning what? We watched him grow up. Here we go. Is not his mother called Mary? Okay, yeah. What does that have to do with anything? And his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Watch this, 57. So they were what now? Wow. So from this verse 54 to 57, they went from astonished to offended that quick. Notice this. They were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, not without honor, underline that, not without honor, that's the key, yeah. except in his own country, his own hometown, and in his own house. 58, notice this. Now, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. What did this sin of merity lead to? Unbelief. Not believing in what obviously he was telling them was true. So what is it again? Question is, what is the number one way to overcome the sin of familiarity and guard against it? If you turn to 1 Timothy 5, I'll give you Dr. Barclay's answer on that. So Matthew 13, he said the purpose of this sin of familiarity, the reason that they became offended was because of what? Lack of honor. Say lack of honor. So we know where the answer lies then. Where does the answer lie? It, it, it lies within honor. 
And I'll explain this to you in a little more detail. 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you're there, say amen. amen. 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 17. I want you to listen to this phrase carefully. Let the elders who rule well. Listen to that phrase. Let the elders who do what? Tell me. Well, rule well. So this is not talking about elders in the church like Don. The term elder can also be used for the pastor or the leadership of the church. This is the leadership of the church because they rule well. So it's not talking here about the elders within the church. They don't have a position of ruling. They have a position of serving alongside the pastor. I don't rule you. I just live by rule of an example to you of how to live. So who is the elder being referred to in verse 17? Leadership, pastors. Let the elders who rule well be what? Counted worthy of. So this resolves the problem of sin of familiarity. If I can guard against my, my losing honor for my pastor, I won't fall into that sin of familiarity. Amen. Well, how do I do that? I'm going to explain it in just a minute. Notice this. He said you should show them what? Double honor. Well, what would that mean? You should make sure that you are giving your pastor every single consideration that's positive and right in the sight of God and not immediately trying to think of everything negative. Again, they have to have, they, they've, had to, they've had to have ruled well. If they've ruled well, there has been no exposure of any kind of sin or wrongdoing in their life. You listening? I'm going on 33 years as a pastor. Thank God my pastor's never had to come stand in this pulpit and correct me before my church. So he says, if you rule well, you're worthy of what? Double honor. Especially those who do what? Labor in the word and doctrine. So once again, we know he's talking about the leadership. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So how do we show double honor to our pastor? Number one, and I don't have time to turn there. You know the scriptures. Back in the book of Ephesians in the fourth chapter, we know about the fivefold ministry gifts that Jesus gave the church. What are they called? What are they called? Fivefold. Next word? They're gifts. How do, I, how do I maintain double honor from my pastor? Number one, you receive your pastor as a gift from God. He's a person, but he has a gift. He has a gift to help me. The moment you lose sight of the fact God gifted my shepherd, he is a gift to me. He has a gift in him, God given, to help me understand the word, to teach me the word, to be led by God, to lead us in the way God wants us to go. So realize if you acknowledge your pastor as a gift, not just some man in the pulpit. You listening? Not just some quote unquote uh, pastor. No, he's a gift to me. If you really recognize your pastor as a gift, think about any precious gift you would be given. Because to honor means to cherish it. If you were given a very valuable gift that you truly knew was a gift from some individual that really truly wanted to bless you and honor you, guess what you would do? You would value it very much by how you handle it, take care of it, etc. So how do you do that in relationship to your pastor? Do you talk about him to others behind his back? Do you let others talk about him behind your back? Behind his back. See, if, if I am doing what Scripture says to show double honor, I'm not recognizing my pastor as a person. He's a person. That's not my focus. My focus is the gift that God put in him to pastor me. 
Amen? And if I truly believe that I found my, the right shepherd, then I know this, God gave him as a gift to me. And I'm going to honor that gift by treating it with reverence and respect. Amen? I want you to notice this. The second thing you do is you need to live as a mature believer after you've been here a while. You need to live in what pastor calls the confident zone. You need to live in the confident zone. Now let me explain to you. He gives three zones here of what people live in in church. If you live in the confident zone, you'll continue to show respect and honor for the gift that God gave you. And therefore, guess what you won't fall into? The sin of familiarity. See, they no longer saw, they didn't, excuse me, they never saw Jesus as a gift from the Father to them. They saw him as somebody they knew as an individual person. When you just see me as an individual person, and yes, I am one, but to you, guess what I am? I'm a gift. Thus say Ephesians chapter 4. I'm a gift from God to the flock that God's called me to and that he's called to me. Now, here are the three zones he talks about. I'll read them several times if you're going to try to write them down. Number one, the suspicion zone. These are, these are what pastor teaches in SMTI. The suspicion zone. You question things. You question things. It's good for new believers, but should not be continued, uh, continued in by mature believers. It's good for new believers, but it should not be continued in by mature believers. It's wrong to question things. Let me ask you a question. If I've ruled well, your sin will find you out. And I've not, in 32 years, I've not ever had to have leadership come here and correct me. Everybody's ever accused me. And I mean, the, accusation, the accusations against me aren't like he's got a woman on the side. He's taking money from the church. No, I'll tell you what the accusations are. He's too harsh. He's too critical. He's too this. He's too that. He's wrong on this. He's wrong on that. Now listen, folks, none of that has to do with sin. None of that does. All that has to do with lifestyle choices and how you live. It's amazing how many people, sadly, who have left this church and said, let me tell you why I'm leaving the church. And I actually had somebody came to me after they went and actually spent time with that individual. And they said, they didn't ever tell me really anything you did. It's like, so what did he do? Well, you know, it's just kind of hard to explain. So I'm here to tell you, folks, that if you live in the suspicion, excuse me, if you, yeah, if you live in the suspicion zone, you're going to question everything your pastor does. Now, understand, it doesn't mean you're always in agreement. I don't know why anybody would be in disagreement to build that building back there. I, I don't know why, but there are people. There are people, there are. There have been people in our church that were against us building that building. Thought we shouldn't do it. I love something Dr. Summerall said. Dr. Summerall said that church I was telling you about in Puerto Rico. He said, God told me to build that church. And he said, when we started building it, we only had about 12 families in the church. And I'm like, God, why build it? Because I told you. He said, once we started building that church, by the time we got it done, we had it filled. But it didn't happen until we started building the church. Why would you not want a facility big enough with 27,000 new homes within seven miles coming here? Why would you not want a church bigger? You want us to just wait here until we fill this with what? 700 people? Where are they all going to go? Now, I don't know if it'll fill with 700 people. I don't care. I'm obeying God to do what God told me because without that facility, we can't do the things God has called us to do. We don't have the facilities to do. 
hear what God's called us to do as it relates to other classes, as it relates to conferences, as it relates to things God told me to do in relationship to our pastor, Holy Spirit conferences. We can't do that here. You know why we won't do one here? I'll tell you why. Because we would overflow this room. We wouldn't have room for everybody. Wouldn't work. So you got to understand this. If you live in the suspicion zone, you're going to ask questions all the time. Well, why did he go buy that piece of equipment? Why did he go buy that? Why did he make that decision? Why did he do that? Listen, guys, if honestly you really believe I'm violating the Bible, you know what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to come talk to your pastor. And you need to come with some evidence to prove that I'm really violating the Bible. Amen? So a mature believer shouldn't live there. I, I have no suspicions about my pastor. I've known him 20-something years. I don't sit here and think, I wonder if pastor's doing wrong by that. Hey, they're building a youth hall right now. I wonder if he should really be doing that. Hey, they're buying new camera equipment. I wonder if he should really be doing that. I, want, I don't question any of those decisions of his. Because all of it's to further the gospel. Go for it, man. Do whatever it takes to further the gospel. I'm not suspicious of my pastor. I've been around him too long. I know him. So then you want to be where, actually, I just talked about the confident zone. So the confident zone is where you need to stay so that you don't become suspicious. If you're not walking in the, how do you walk in the confident zone? It's really simple. Did God call you to me? If you know that, then you know God gave my pastor as a gift to me. If I know he's a gift to me and he has ruled well, why would I be suspicious of my pastor? Young people initially will. They don't know any better. But a mature believer ought to have enough knowledge of their spirit man to know my pastor has not violated scripture. He's not led us away from Jesus. He doesn't teach heresy. He's not a hypocrite. He don't tell us one thing and then go to the bar and start drinking and do other things. Come on, somebody. So understand if you live in the comfort, uh, confident zone, that's where you need to stay so you don't become suspicious. Then you have the third area, which is called the excess familiarity zone. Excess familiarity zone. What's that? You criticize and become judgmental. The moment you start criticizing your pastor and you start now passing judgment, become judgmental of his decisions and what he does, you're in the sin of familiarity. You've now fallen into the sin of merity. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to do exactly what they did in Jesus' day. You're now going to be offended at what I say. Isn't it amazing? Same thing like with me as a pastor. They first come in, they're astonished. Not because of me, because of the word. Wow, man, this is powerful. This is good stuff. And they go from that to what? Offended. But nothing's changed. We're still teaching the same word. If you think I'm trying to cover up what I teach, why do you think every single teaching we do is public and on, on, on a website? And on, it's all over, man. It's all over. I have 400 plus people read my blog every day. I'm not hiding anything. And I'm open for correction. I've told people all along, if you truly believe I've done something wrong, I will have you call my pastor. I'll give you their ministry number. But if you go to him and call him, you know what? You better read this next verse. Look at this, verse 19. Do not receive an accusation. Do not what? Receive. You listening? Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. You better have two or three witnesses that can actually prove what he's done is wrong. And if he has, once again, who do you bring it to? Bring it to your pastor. What if your pastor says, I haven't done that, but you have black and white evidence that he does? Not your opinion you don't like the way he said something. 
Not your opinion because you think I might have talked about you. Guess what? When I preach the Word of God, God's talking about all of you. I don't think of you individually. I, I'm obeying God. How many know that God's up here talking to you? Right. All of you. Amen. So you got to understand when we talk about accusation, we're talking about like adultery. Come on. Yeah. Or, or misappropriation of funds, misusing the funds of the church. All of our stuff is looked over by our board. Everything is there available for anybody to see. You got to understand, if I was doing something wrong, do you really think I'm going to stand up here and say, call my pastor? Let me help you. People are doing stuff wrong. They're not going to be telling you, call my pastor. Amen. You got something to prove that I'm doing wrong that, that needs to be corrected? I'm totally open for correction. Call my pastor. But I will tell you this because I've known uh, several people have done it before. If you call him, you better have some definite proof. Or you're not going to like the phone call. <laughs> First John chapter 5. Why? Because you're falsely accusing. First John, it's amazing to me, it's sad, it's sad to me, honestly. It is sad to me how many believers listen to accusations. Most of the accusations, they're nothing to do with sin. They're just things they don't like. They're accusing me of making a mistake to build a building. They're accusing me of making a mistake of the way I talk to you. Oh, I'll tell you what, man, if you think I'm harsh today, you should have been here 20 plus years ago. <laughs> I was a little different. I mean, we're around back then. No, I was a little different 20 plus years ago. I have actually mellowed some. <laughs> and I promise you this, I love listening to people just tell it straight, man. And Sumrall's one of the best guys at doing it. And most people couldn't sit under Sumrall's meetings today because they get too easily offended by his tone of voice. And if you know that guy, he loves people. He absolutely loves people. Amen? When people start saying, well, you know, you just go too long on Sunday nights. We got families to go home. You can leave anytime. Nobody's going to think anything bad about you. If you need to go home and get to bed, I'm not going to stand up the next week and say, now remember that family that left early the other night? Everybody has different decisions, different lifestyles, different choices. You can, you can go anytime you want. Nobody's holding you bound to anything. Nor do I actually turn around and say, well, you people that leave early, there's something wrong with you. Have you ever heard me say that? I've never said that. Not one time. No. All right, next question. Moving on. Number three, could you further explain 1 John 5, 14 through 17? Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> That's what they said. Thank you. So I'm going to say you're welcome. I'll explain it. 1 John chapter 5, 14. Now, this is the confidence that we have in Him, in God. And whoever's asking this question probably knows this part. They, they want me to go all the way down to verse 17. This is the confidence we have in Him, God. If we ask anything according to what? His will. What does He do? What does He do? Here's this. How do we know we'll ask according to His will? Well, John 15, 7, we talked about it today. You abide in Jesus, His word abides in you. You're going to ask what you will, which will be in line with His will. Right? You'll have what you ask. So here, here's how we can have confidence in bringing petition requests to God. We have to know His will. So we've got to know His will. If we don't know his will, there's no confidence in going to him. Because we have no idea whether he really wants to do that for us or not. But when you know it's his will, you know he's listening. 15, notice this. And if we know that he hears, if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, notice this. We know that we have what? The petitions we've asked of him. So notice several things here. We get confidence when we come to God and ask anything according to his will. 
That gives us confidence to know he wants to do it because it's according to his will. And therefore, notice this, we know he heard us. What if I don't ask according to his will? He ain't listening. Well, I can't bring it to pass. Think of all the, any idea? I mean, you could literally say easily, the millions of hours in prayer that people have prayed to God, of which God never heard, because they never prayed according to his will. But when you pray according to his will, what does he do? He hears you. 15, if you know he heard you, guess what you know? Come on, help me preach. If you know that he heard you, what do you know? I know I have it. I know I have the petitions that I've asked of him. So that's pretty simple to understand here. I think this is where they're wanting me to further give some explanation. 16, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin. So this is a believer seeing another believer living in some form of a sinful lifestyle or sinful act. If he sees a brother sinning a sin, watch, which does not lead to death. What does it not do? doesn't lead to death. Then he will ask, and he, God the Father, will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that you should pray about that. All unrighteousness, that which is not right in the sight of God, is sin. But again, there is sin not leading to what? To death. So in essence, in verse 16 and 17, he's saying, if you see a brother in sin, how many know the Bible also says you should go to him? But in this case, clearly it doesn't say about going to them, so you probably can't go to them. You're not where they are. What can I do? Pray for them. If you know it's a sin not leading to death. He said if it's a sin leading to death, I do not say you should pray about that because God can't forgive him. Now I'm going to tell you right up front, if you go look up uh, the context of what scholars say about this, there's all kinds of answers. So I just let the Bible interpret the Bible. Some will say a sin that could cause you to die physically. You shouldn't pray about that. Why not? God's even raised the dead. I don't agree with that one. You listening? I believe clearly if you let Scripture define itself, there's one sin that's called the unpardonable sin. Because it's unpardonable, guess what it leads to? Death, separation from God. If a person has committed the unpardonable sin, you don't pray about that one. You don't pray for them. Why? Can't be forgiven. And because they can't be forgiven, you're wasting your time to pray for them because God can't do anything to forgive them. He can't do anything to bring them back to life, in other words. They've chosen to do something, he said, that is unpardonable. And therefore, separated from God himself, life, they're now going to have to do what? Face eternal death. So now you kind of get into the sin of uh, the the, uh, unpardonable sin. What is it? Listen, if you do it, you'll know it. Because it's a willing decision to deny Jesus, deny the Holy Spirit that's living in you, to say, I don't want you anymore. I want nothing to do with you anymore. I want you out of my life. I just want to live in sin. I want to do my own thing. I don't want God. You were born again. You can kick him out. Wait a minute, wait a minute, Pastor. Jesus himself said nobody snatches you from his hand. He didn't say you couldn't walk away from him. He said nobody can pull you out of your salvation. Nobody can take you away from Jesus unless you let him, but nobody can do that. But he did not say you cannot turn around and walk away from him. He didn't say that. Amen? Amen. So understand, clearly just letting the Bible define itself, this sin leading to death, in my view clearly from Scripture, has to be the unpardonable sin. 
Because it's the only thing you certainly would never pray for somebody for God to get into their heart and, and get them aware of it and to obviously get them to wake up and repent so he can forgive them. Why? Can't be forgiven. But others that are sinning sins that don't lead to death, if they obviously don't think there's anything wrong with it, what's he saying? Pray for them. Pray for them that their eyes would be open because that doesn't lead to death. God can still help them if they'll listen. Come on. To come out of that sinful act and come back into the life that he has for them to live. Ask God to open their eyes. Go to the Ephesians 1 prayer. If they're a believer, open their eyes, Lord. Open their eyes. Let their eyes have understanding of what they're doing. Let them be enlightened by the Holy Spirit within them of the wrong that they're doing. Let them see that. So we're even encouraged to do so. So this is simply saying in verse 16 to 17, you're to pray for those who are believers that are in sin that hopefully their eyes would be opened by God to see the sin that they're in. But if it's an unpardonable sin leading to death, there is no forgiveness. So to pray about that is a waste of time because God cannot forgive them. Amen? Amen. James 3. We helping you at all tonight? How many say that was a good question? Any of these questions? Yeah, glad somebody asked that. James chapter 3. So I mentioned one time in a service, and I was just referring to being Pastor Barclay. I never referred to this being everybody. But I mentioned that pastor never wanted to be a church, uh, be a pastor. I never wanted to be a pastor. Most ministers I know never grew up wanting to be a pastor. That doesn't mean somebody may not. Brother Hagin did. Brother Hagin, when he was a young boy before he fell to sin, came to the knowledge of sin, he used to preach to the cabbage heads out in their garden. But then he fell to sin and he pulled away and he had nothing to do with God till he got born again. So here's the question. This is a good question. When you taught on not wanting to be a pastor, you mentioned that people shouldn't want to be pastors because they are held to a higher standard for what they teach people. You and Dr. Barclay didn't want to be pastors. Both of y'all became Christians. Once you know they're a Texan. Both y'all became Christians later in life. But what about the kids who were raised in church who want to be, a pa- or want to be pastors? They can want to and still be identified by pastors for the call of God on their life, right? Or not. I got confused about that part. Well, they can want to, but listen to me carefully. I want you to hear me carefully. I want you to read this in this verse with me. I would not encourage them to immediately, obviously, just desire that. I would encourage them to learn how to walk with God and follow God. Because if they walk with God, God's going to reveal whether that's a call on their life or not. This is such a high standard call. It is such a strict judge call that you don't want somebody making the mistake as a little kid saying, oh, I want to be a pastor. And there's even no confirmation yet about your heart in their life about that. And you keep encouraging them to do that. Well, guess what? There's a lot of people gone into ministry because of that that were never called to ministry. I don't think there's anything wrong with them saying they have a desire for that. I think as a parent, you need to help them understand, I'm glad that you want to do the work of God. But let's keep developing our walk with God because if that's what God has for you, he'll confirm that in your heart. He's the one that will reveal that to you and then leadership above you will show you that as well. I know some people who were encouraged by their parents to become ministers who actually got in the ministry who are not called to be in the ministry. All because they were simply encouraged by their family. So it's, um, it's important to understand. I'm not saying there's anything wrong for them to want to do that. I just wouldn't continue to foster that desire till you know for sure it's God. 
Why? James chapter 3, verse 1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers. Let not many of you become teachers. Meaning, you should not have a desire for a bunch of you to become teachers. Ministers of the gospel. Knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. See, two bad things happen here if I mislead a child in a way they should not go. They don't have uh, anything other. How many know kids grow up, they'll want to be one thing one month and something else another month? Yes. Right? So this is a little different than saying, hey, uh, it's like I remember Kyle growing up. He wanted to be a Walmart greeter. That didn't work out. Because <laughs> he got older, he changed his desires. I hope you're listening carefully to what I'm saying. I'm not telling you it's wrong for your child to say that. I think you need to understand how to educate your child to say, you know what, that's great, that's cool, that's wonderful, but you know what I want you to focus on? Walk with God. Yeah. Focus on your walk with God. Because you know what, son, you know what, daughter, if God has a call for you in this area, guess what? He's going to confirm that. Right. You get older, he'll confirm that. Children can want a lot of things when they're younger. And if I foster, oh, yeah, man, you should desire that. You should want to be. You. If you as a parent say, yeah, you should want to become a pastor and God didn't call them. And they think because of your encouragement, they should become one. Let me help you. They're going to get in a position where they're not going to be too happy in a calling that God did not call them to. Right. Number one, if you think being a pastor is easy, ask Kathy about that. She knows me better than anybody. Number two, you're going to stand a much stricter judgment. Thus saith the Bible. Isn't it interesting in the next verse? It goes on to tell you in the very, very next verse. We always usually separate this. But it says, For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, notice this, he's a perfect or complete man able to bridle what? Now listen, this applies to us individually. But what's the context? He came right out of verse 1 and said, For... What's the context? Verse 1, don't all of you desire to become teachers. Why? For we all stumble in many things. But he who stumbles in word. You know what that's saying? If you desire to become a teacher and you're not called to be one, and you're going to speak to people, you know what you're going to do? You're going to direct that body in a direction they should go based on what you're saying. And if ain't a God, you're going to be, you're going to be accountable for that. See, the whole context is in relationship to being a teacher, for we all stumble in many things, but if anyone does not stumble in word, what he's preaching. Notice this, he's a mature, perfect means mature, complete man, able also to bridle what? The whole body. He's able to help the body get directed the direction they should go. You see that? But what if he's not called the pastor? He's probably going to mislead that body. I wish I had time, but if you want to go to it real quick, go to John chapter 10. Real quick, John chapter 10. You, I hope you hear my heart on that. I just think you're going you're gonna to be in a position that you don't want to be encouraging your child to desire that. If your child says they have a desire to do that, I, if it's my child telling me they have a desire to do that, I say, son, if that's what you want to do in your heart, wonderful. I'm glad you are excited about doing that. But you know what? We just need to focus on walking with God. Because if that's what God has for your life, you're going to know it. He'll confirm that in your heart. Not only will he confirm that with you, he'll confirm that with others. Amen. Are there people that are called that don't obey? Sure, man. There's many people that, have, that were called that don't obey. Happy Caldwell, great friend of our pastors, wound up in a city pastor and church. And after he got there, the Lord said, you're the third person I chose to come here. Huh? 
Third one, yeah, the first two didn't obey me. But they need to know they've heard from God. Are you listening? Because parents can be influential, obviously, to their, to their kids and should be in a good way. If you start encouraging that desire and it ain't God, you're misleading them down the wrong path. You listening? John 10, most assuredly I say to you, Jesus said, he who does not enter the sheepfold, the body that he obviously has for them to come in to get a flock out of and lead, if they don't come in by the door but climb up some other way, that same as what? What are they? Thief and a robber too, but he who enters by the door is what? You should know this because I taught it many times. But what this is saying is in relationship to the shepherd that God's ordained to teach the word, he's got to come through the door. Who's the door? It ain't the parent encouraging them. It's Jesus anointing them. Ephesians 4, he's he's a gift as a pastor for a flock. But you know, you can have, and I know, I've seen ministers in pulpits sincere in their desire to help people, not anointed by God. Jesus did not anoint them. And what happens over time is they either mislead their flock or they tend to become a tickle-the-ear type of pastor who is getting concerned about people leaving, so they're just going to start saying whatever people want them to hear so they don't go away. See, a true anointed shepherd is never going to care how many people walk in the door or how many people walk out. He's going to fulfill his calling no matter what. But if you're not truly anointed by God, guess what you're going to get caught up in? Numbers. Because you're going to think that determines success. Do you know how many people are sitting here tonight? That That don't determine whether I've been a success or not. I used to think it did because I was a performance trap idiot. Thank God he delivered me from it. I say idiot, I just mean caught up in an idiot belief. Not me being an idiot, talking about idiot belief, thinking that I find my worth and value in my performance. And I found out that's not where my worth and value comes from. That I obey God, that I do what God told me to do. So I hope that helps answer your question. You've got to understand there is a stricter judgment to that call. They have to come through the door. So unless I already know as a parent that without a doubt I believe that's their calling, I'd be careful about encouraging people in that, uh, encouraging kids in that. Nothing wrong with saying that's wonderful, but let's just keep pursuing God. Because if it's God, he'll confirm it in their heart and he'll confirm it with leadership. Can I get a better amen? Matthew 11. This may be our last one for tonight. Matthew 11, but we'll pick it up again on Wednesday night. This, I promise you this will be our last one tonight. This leads into all kinds of issues and questions and stuff that we deal with in our church about. Number five, how do you respond to those who drink and bring up Matthew 11, 18, and 19? The context seems to be contrary to the wine was different back then argument. Question again, how do you respond to those who drink and they bring up Matthew eleven eighteen 18, and 19? They use those verses, in other words, to justify their drinking. Because the context seems to be contrary to the wine, uh, to the wine that, uh, to the wine that uh, was different back then argument. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to prove to you tonight that when the Bible talks about wine, there's two types of wine talked about. You have to look at the context. One is fermented, one is not. When the Bible says wine, it does not mean what we think in Western culture. It's an Eastern culture way back almost 2,000 years ago. It's not the same thing of what we think. We're so Westernized in our view and thinking of alcohol, we don't see it the way the Bible does. And whether you like it or not, that's why the Bible says you better stutter and show yourself approved. 
based on what Scripture says. First and foremost, I mean, if you start with a basic thought, is it okay to get drunk? But what does that mean, really? Okay, so you know it's not okay to get drunk, but the next question is, what does that mean? What does it mean to not get drunk? Who determines if you're drunk? What, did Jesus have breathalyzer tests back then? Let's find out if you sin tonight or not. Let's take a breathalyzer. Oh, I know. We'll get you out here on the street, man. We'll stand you out here behind the donkey, and you'll have to walk a straight line, and we'll see how you do. How, so what determines it? Stumbling, falling down drunk? It's clear that it's a sin to be drunk. Bible's a, Bible, even the moderation drinkers think, yeah, we know we can't, can't get drunk, praise God, but it's okay to drink in moderation. There's so many people that try to argue this point. So let's go to these verses they reference. Good question. Matthew 11, 18 and 19. Jesus said, say Jesus said. Watch. For John, John the Baptist, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. Now what, what does that mean? John fasted and prayed all the time. And therefore, they said he had a demon. What'd they say? What'd they say? The they-sayers. The they-sayers said he had a demon. 19, he goes on, And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Please look at the last verse, last part of the verse. But wisdom is justified by her children. Now, that just means wisdom is justified by her works or her actions. It's a, it's a phrase in their day that just simply meant, you want to know true wisdom? Watch what they walk out of their life and you'll find out true wisdom. This is, there's no argument in this verse. Let me show you. So, verse 18. John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. What do you mean, neither eating or drinking? He didn't go to sinners' homes. He was John in the wilderness, declaring the way of the Lord. So it just means they didn't accuse him of going in sinners' homes and eating and drinking with him. They accused him of being demon-possessed because he's living out in the wilderness. I have a question for you. Was John demon-possessed? No, it was a lie. But that's what they said of him. And those same people said of Jesus, the same ones who claimed John had a demon, Jesus said, say of me, that because I go into sinners' homes, I am somebody who has to be eating and drinking and therefore a wine-bibber. Drinking a type of wine that would obviously be considered wrong that could cause me to become drunk. But wisdom is proven by her works. All you got to do is look at all of Jesus' lifestyle and ask yourself a question, did he ever sin? So we know he didn't get drunk. Well, he drank in moderation. Prove it. This is an accusation. Jesus ain't saying, yeah, I went around drinking wine. I just never got drunk. I drank wine, but they said, oh, he actually did drink a type of wine, but it wasn't the intoxicated kind. But Jesus is saying, this is, this is no contest at all. These same people were accusing John of having a demon. Well, he didn't. And they're accusing Jesus of drinking wine with alcohol content and therefore he's a wine-bibber because he goes into these sinners' homes and he sits there and he actually eats and drinks with them. What was he doing in those homes, by the way? Most of these people that accused him were never in there. He was preaching the gospel. They wanted to hear about the good news. He wasn't going in there and fellowshipping and doing what they did. If he'd have gone in there and did what they did, he'd have violated the word. He'd have sinned and therefore, guess what? We wouldn't have salvation today. 
Now, this is one of the best things I've ever seen in a long time. I actually printed out a few of these. If, they're all, if they all disappear tonight, I'll print out some more. It's called Arguments Made in Defense of Social Drinking. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. Arguments made in defense of social drinking. So there's a lot of arguments about okay to drink, moderation, social drinking, etc. What does the Bible actually say about that? Well, first and foremost, this is, this is a, there's no challenge here at all. This was people lying about Jesus. Jesus was not a wine bibber. Well, it says he came eating and drinking. That's what they claimed. You listening? That's what they claim. Jesus didn't say, yeah, I came eating and drinking, glory to God, going in the sinner's homes, and they'll say, he must be getting drunk in there. He said, no. He said, the same people that accused John of having a demon accused me of eating and drinking with sinners and getting drunk. You want to know if I did or not? Hey, check out my lifestyle. Wisdom is proven by the lifestyle, by the actions by which one lives. Find sin somewhere else in my life, and maybe you might have an argument, but there was no sin. And there was no time that Jesus ever sinned. And I'm going to tell you, I don't have time. You can go back and read this tonight. It's got, this is awesome. This has got tons of examples of where people come up with an aspect of saying, I have an argument why it's okay to drink in moderation. This will shoot it down every single time. The Bible's real clear about this. One of the simplest truths is to actually drink alcohol content wine in front of an alcoholic or around other people that you may not even know have a drinking problem, you now become a stumbling block. That's a sin. In the latter part of this, you'll actually see the argument in the back. In the days of Paul, there was a lot of people who still ate meat offered to idols. Demon worship. Is it a sin to eat meat in that day offered to, to uh, demon uh, idols. No. If you give thanks for anything, it's sanctified. But there were people still weak in their faith that didn't believe that. And they thought if they ate that meat offered to an to a idol, a sacrifice, they could get a demon. There ain't no demon hanging inside of a piece of meat, folks. But Paul said, you ready? Paul said, for the purpose of that other person's weakness in their walk with God right now, so you don't disrupt their faith walk, he said, if you're in their presence, do not eat that meat. Well, see, I'm not in the presence drinking. I'm at home. Wait a minute, wait a minute. We don't have meat offered to idols today. And then he goes on to say, if you do anything in any way that would lead someone to actually drink alcohol, you've created a stumbling block. What are you going to do, sneak at home? I was asked this the other day, you know. If, if you're going to walk down the alcohol aisle and grab some wine and stick it in your cart, alcohol content wine, and you know what's going to happen, right, as you're heading towards the checkout line, you're going to pass somebody that you know. What, are you going to take little containers that you're going to cover it all with and hide it? Because ladies and gentlemen, if they see you drinking, guess what that's called? That's actually called a form of a sin because that's an... Okay, let me just, let me just put it to you this way. All right, so y'all catch me at Walmart tomorrow with my cart with like four bottles of wine in it. And you stop me. How you doing? Good to see you. Praise the Lord. And your eyes keep glaring down at those bottles of wine. Why would you look at the bottles of wine? I thought pastor said we shouldn't drink. Well, wouldn't you be a little concerned about your pastor with four bottles of wine in the cart? I'd all of a sudden say, well, he must be a hypocrite because he's, he's taking wine home. Yes. Come on, you're <laughs> Ephesians chapter 5. See, anytime you look at a subject, although those Matthew verses are un unarguable, 
Because it was an accusation. It was a total lie. Did John have a demon? Then Jesus wasn't a wine-bibber, nor was he drinking alcohol content wine, or that would have made him a wine-bibber. It was a lie. It was an accusation. So are there two types of wine in the Bible? Yes, there are. But let's, let's address this first. Ephesians chapter 5. You ready? Yes. Are you telling me I can't drink wine? No, you can do anything you want. If you like drinking wine, drink on. I'm not going to come to your house and say get rid of it. That's between you and God. I'm here as your pastor to teach you the Bible. You live any way you want. I'm not going to condemn you for it. God won't even condemn you for it. Does the Bible actually endorse it? No, it does not. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be what instead? Filled with the Spirit. Now, let me help you. So a lot of people say, well, see, there you go. I can drink in moderation. I just don't need, I just can't get drunk. All right. So my question is, again, if all it takes is for you to not get drunk, then what determines whether you're drunk or not? How do you answer that verse? How in the world do you actually have any form of an actual uh, line to separate drunk, not drunk. How do you, how, where do you figure that out at? Well, let me help you. If you look up the word there, if you look up the word there in relationship to Ephesians 5.18, where it says, do not be what now? Drunk. Okay, underline that word. If you look it up, guess what the word is? Intoxicated. What kind of wine is this referring to? That which has toxins in it. This is not referring to just grape juice, which wine was also referred to. I'm going to prove it to you from the Bible tonight. I'm going to show you a verse that will tell you that directly. In the Bible, it actually called juice that came from fruit, not in, not in any fermentation or alcohol content to it. It called it wine in the Bible. So when the Bible calls it wine, it doesn't always mean that it actually had any type of fermentation or alcohol in it. They were learning in this day how to add alcohol content to it. By the way, did you know they had already learned in this day how to remove the toxins? They already knew how. They already knew how to remove the fermentation. You could filter it out. You could keep it under a certain temperature. Tell me, I want you to actually extract the juice from the actual uh, grape. You could keep it under a certain temperature and it'll never ferment. They knew ways to keep it from turning in to what we know as alcohol content wine. So it's not like, I had one gal in my church one time, she said, I don't buy your deal about drinking, da, 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 da. I said, you drink, don't you? Well, yeah, we drink wine. I said, well, go ahead. That's fine. But I'm going to preach the word. Well, I don't agree with you. We went to a place one time where they actually grow you know, all the grapes and stuff like that. And we went through this little deal and checked it all out, got to see it all and everything. And they showed us how in a short period of time, how that fermentation process takes place. You know why? Because they didn't do what they needed to do to stop it from happening. You can stop it from happening. They want it fermented, darling. And that's why they're doing what they're doing to ferment it. And you're drinking it. They left my church over it. Many people have. Sad to say. So the word drunk means what? Intoxicated. Get this. Is this deep? Watch this. You hear how deep this is? Intoxicated. Do not be intoxicated with what? Wine. What that just told you is don't drink wine with toxins in it. Alcohol, fermentation. How do you stop from being intoxicated? You don't drink wine that has alcohol content to it. Therefore, those toxins don't get in you. Because if you drink wine that has toxins in it, context fermentation, alcohol, it's now in you. Any amens? 
This is powerful. In this deal I got back here for you, this is powerful. Listen to this. This, this guy has done an expert job with, uh, with uh, Greek and Hebrew scholars in the Bible. Listen to this. The phrase there, be not drunk, is translated from the Greek root, methusko. That word means, you ready? Guess what that word drunk means here? It means to begin to be softened. To begin. When you begin to be softened, the moment that alcohol content wine hits your belly, you begin to be softened. The word there in the context, be not drunk, means do not begin to get softened. That's from Young's Analytical Concordance. It means to moisten or to be moistened with liquor. What do you mean moisten? It's liquid. How do you get moistened with it? You drink it. In this deep. That's from S.T. Bloomfield. Notice this, number three, it also means to grow drunk. To grow. Marking the beginning of Methuo, E.W. Bullinger, is an, in, listen, this is important. This phrase here is an inceptive verb. What do you mean an inceptive verb? I know you all know what an inceptive verb is, right? Well, here's the point, listen to it. It is a word, say a word. The word drunk means it's a word that marks the process of becoming drunk. Don't even start the process right. of becoming drunk. Thus saith Ephesians 5, 18. It is worded this way. You ready? This is the way it's actually worded. Do not begin the process of becoming drunk. When a person consumes alcohol, he is beginning to be softened and intoxicated. How do you fulfill Ephesians 5.18? You don't even drink anything with alcohol content because the moment you do, you begin the process. So how do you stop from beginning the process? You don't drink it. If you do, you just violated the word and you have now begun the process. Doesn't mean you're staggering down, falling down drunk. Now, he's got a lot of great doctor's reports in here as well. And it proves over and over again that literally every individual could be actually affected by alcohol content in different actual levels of drinking. But what are you going to do? You're going to wait and figure that out on your own? No, that's not what the verse said. The verse said don't even start. That's saying don't even start the process. Are you listening? It goes on here to say Ephesians 5.18 shows that alcohol is only wrong when used in excess, many say. Thus, moderate drinking is okay. No. In the King James Version, again, it says, Do not be drunk with wine, which is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. So another argument is, see, drinking alcohol in moderation is not condemned. It's drinking in excess that's a problem. Now, this argument is really a misunderstanding of the word excess. The word does not refer to an excessive amount. It refers to an excessive ungodly behavior, which would be what? Starting the process of getting drunk. You listening? The American Standard Version even says, and be not drunk with wine wherein is riot. The better, uh, the better, this, excuse me, this better conveys the meaning of this passage again. And then the idea, remember, it's an inceptive verb. Do not begin drinking alcohol, which brings ungodly behavior but rather be filled with the Spirit, which, we, which will have the opposite effect. Amen. Amen. Are you still listening? 
So first and foremost, does scripture in any way, shape, or form endorse any type of moderation of drinking? No. No, there's nothing saying it's okay moderately to drink. Now, he'll go through all these different arguments with you about Paul telling Timothy, uh, you know, to take a little wine for your stomach, say, et cetera, et cetera. But I want to show you a couple of the verses real quick. Can I do that? I want you to see this. Turn with me, if you would, real quick to Proverbs 20. So I'm going to prove to you when the Bible says wine, it could be actually that which has alcohol content fermented or that which does not. Proverbs 20. And realize in their day, they began to add alcohol content to it even after fermentation. Guess what they do today? They add alcohol to it. Are you listening? You're going to go buy wine. Guess what's already got it? Guess what already has added into it? Alcohol. Guess what you've just done? Violated Ephesians 5.18. You've started the process. You know, I love this report because it even talks about a gal from the Mayo Clinic, an incredible doctor who's researched this for years. I actually had my grandpa told this. My grandpa was told, drink a little glass of wine every night for your heart. You know what my grandpa died of? Cancer. You know what they've now found out? One little glass of wine a day increases your cancer potential up to like 45 to 60% because of the toxins that are in it. Alcohol also destroys protein production. Protein production is necessary for muscle development and growth. It stops the process. It resides within your system for a minimum of 48 hours to get it out. Any amount. But she brings up this whole research about red wine actually being good for the heart. Guess what they've now found out? Do you know why it is? It's not because of the alcohol content. It's the skin of the grape. Well, guess what else they found out? So it is true of regular grapes. Why? It's the skin of the grape that actually is good for the heart, not the alcohol content. Guess what you can do? They now know you can, re you can drink grape juice and it's good for your heart. Because the actual, and she describes the actual part that's coming from the skin and the seeds that are in it. She said that actually comes from the skin and the seeds, not from the alcohol content. And there's all kinds of research now coming out that says even if you have just a little glass of wine a day, again, your cancer uh, opportunity goes up by quite an exponential number. All right, let's prove from the Bible that there are two types of wine referred to. Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is what? Well, that certainly don't sound like unfermented wine, does it? What does it call it again? A mocker. A mocker. Strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is what? Not wise. So this is clearly referring to that which what? Is fermented or has alcohol content in it. If wine's a mocker, fermented kind, clearly strong drink a brawler, then if I partake of any of it, guess what? I am actually going to be somebody who is in a sense making a mockery of God. Proverbs 23. I'm, I'm sure I'll get lots of response to this on the live stream. Proverbs 23. I don't care if you drink or not. You do what you want. Proverbs 23. You're not going to go to hell for drinking anymore. You're going to go to hell for smoking. But you're not going to do yourself physically good. Proverbs 23, verse 31. Do not look at the wine. Excuse me. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. 32. At last it bites like a serpent. And stings like a viper. What kind of, what wine is this referring to? That which is fermented. Right. Clearly. 
Do not look at the wine when it's red. In the glass now, fermented, because it sparkles in the cup, draws you in, swirls around smoothly, but at the last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. So these are all verses describing what kind of wine? Fermented wine. That which has alcohol content to it. Isaiah 65. Please do not forget, they already knew how and they were already doing it. They knew how to keep wine from fermenting. They even knew how to, keep it, uh, how to get it out of, the wine, out of the actual juice. They knew how to actually filter it out. And they were doing so. So even in their day, not all wine was fermented. Proven by history in relationship to the times in which they lived. Where did I tell you to go? 65. Why, why am I in Isaiah 53? I have no idea. Watch this. You ready? So here's proof that every time the word wine is used in the Bible doesn't mean it's alcohol content. You got to look at the context. How many of you know those last two contexts were pretty clear? That was fermented wine. All right? Look at Isaiah 65, verse 8. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found where? Where? Where is it found? Hasn't been extracted yet. It's in the cluster of the grape. It's in the cluster of the actual fruit itself. It hasn't even been extracted yet. Right. What is he calling it? New wine. Is it fermented? Hasn't even had a chance to be. Right. Hasn't been taken out of the actual, uh, actual piece of fruit yet. No. So guess what? The Bible doesn't always refer to wine as fermented wine. As the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servant's sake, that I may not destroy them all. Think about this based on that report. Is it actually got a benefit for people? Good for your heart. Because of the skin, because of the actual, uh, whatever it is she tells you that comes off of the skin of that juice. That right there is not fermented wine. It's still in the cluster. It hasn't even been taken out yet. And it's called what? New wine. So a lot of people reference Jesus. Well, Jesus turned water to wine. Really easy to deal with. So the governor, actually, after the wedding had been going on for quite a while, right, said, oh, we're out of wine. Mama comes to Jesus. Hey, they're out of wine. Can you get us some more? My time hasn't come. This is not time for me to do miracles yet. She said, you, smart mama, she quit talking to him. She turned to his disciples, said, you just do whatever he tells you. Meaning what? He'll do what I told him. And she walks away. Say, smart mama. She was a smart mama, man. So Jesus says, do what? Go get those water pots. Get what? Water pots. Fill them with water. Take them to the governor. Let him draw some out. He did. And all of a sudden, what did the governor say? Wow, you saved the best wine till the last. So if this is in any way, shape, or form, fermented wine, that's now being handed out at the end of the wedding feast. And they've been drinking, as the Bible says, to the full up until that time. And they're all drinking, all wine in the Bible is fermented. So they're drinking fermented wine all through the wedding. And now Jesus actually adds about 100 plus gallons more. That's even the best of the wine, even better than what they've had. Guess what Jesus just did? He just sinned. Because if you take the analogy, you're not supposed to be drunk. What do you, what do you, they're already drinking throughout the whole wedding. If they were drinking fermented wine, let me help you. They're already pretty snockered. I don't know how many weddings you've been to. I've watched people drink all through the wedding. I mean, they get to the end of the wedding. Let me help you. They're pretty fired up by the end of the wedding. Are you listening? 
So now Jesus actually provides even better wine than what they had before. Wow, you saved the best of the wine till last. This is not 70 proof. This is 100 proof stuff. This is good stuff. Now, first of all, if the governor would have been drunk, if he would have been drinking fermented wine all that time, do you think he would have really been able to discern that it was better than what they had before? He wouldn't even cared. Oh, just give it a cup, man. I don't care what tastes like. He wouldn't even care. Drunks don't care. If they've been drinking to the full, and the Bible said they were, if they've been drinking to the full, they'd already have been drunk. But they weren't. You know why? They weren't drinking fermented wine. What's the best wine? So again, think of wine in the term, not always fermented. In that context, that could not have been fermented wine or Jesus would have violated the Bible. He'd have become a stumbling block to all those who'd already been drinking. They're now all going to be snark or drunk before they leave there. And he just violated scripture. He didn't do that. So all the wine drinking up until that time when it says that they were full, it just means, listen, if you, drink, if you take any juice and you start drinking a lot of it, guess what? You're going to get full. Drink to the full means they've already had a lot of this juice they've already drank. But guess what people did all the time, commonplace in their day when they had a big actual event like this? You know what they did? Normally, they brought the better wine out at the start, and then they actually got to the inferior at the end. You know why? You're at the end of the wedding. We don't care if you stay or not at that point. Seriously. Think common terms. Just use common sense. You already been through here through the whole wedding. At this point, you're not going to care whether you get the good taste in wine or not. So what's the best wine? Let me help you. To actually extract juice from any type of a red or a uh, red grape or just a, or a grape of any kind to get actual uh, uh, drinkable context out of it, guess what you got to do? You got to water to it. It's too thick. Right. When they squish the juice out, you have to add water to it. Go, you can research this. They have to have water to it to be able to get it drinkable, palatable. So what's the best thing to give at the end? Because you have to buy it. What's the best thing to give at the end of the wedding? Hey, listen, guys, we still got some more wine left over there. Go add some water to it. They're not going to care. Water it down more. They're not going to care. We're already at the end of the wedding. So normally, guess what they did in their day? As they got to the end of the wedding, what they're now handing out has now been watered down. And if it's been watered down, guess what you don't get? The full taste of the juice. Go buy some grape juice tonight. Drink grape juice right out of the bottle. You get the full taste. Now dump about half that out, fill it up half of water and shake it up and see what it tastes like. You don't have the best now. That's what they did. But here Jesus gives them what? He gives them wine that actually has the perfect mixture to it. That was a miracle created by God and it's not fermented. It was tasty juice, man. Wow, this stuff tastes really good. You can taste the full juice out of this actual, uh, actual out, of, out of this, uh, I would call it grape juice, out of the wine. You saved the best to last. You didn't water it down like everybody else does. So common sense even tells you, if Jesus is messing around with intoxicating type of drink, what determines whether you're drunk or not? And clear, the verb in Ephesians 5.18 is referring to what? If you even begin the process, that's what that word drunk means. Do not become drunk with wine. So we know what kind of wine it's talking about. What kind of wine is that talking about? That which is fermented. Do not even start the process. You listening? With fermented wine. 
Because guess what? You're going to get toxin. You're going to become intoxicated. Right. Any amens about that? We pray that you are blessed by the message Pastor Baker shared with you today. For more spiritual resources that can help you in your walk with God, or to invite Pastor Baker as a guest speaker, just go to our website at cffchurch.com. You will find additional teachings by video, audio, and printed resources that will be a blessing to you. May God's very best be yours.